0: G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber and I'm TJ Steadman, and you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Last week, we had an absolute banger of a show. It was epic and rather lengthy. Uh, We went all over the place. Look, you get so many different parts of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We also snuck in a bit of a look at an ancient Babylonian epic. We looked at all these different examples of biblical literature where we could see parallels between warfare
1: and flood. Yeah, then we went astronomical in our search for connections with some unusual language found in the flood story, and that led us to the constellations and signs of the Zodiac, which were used by biblical authors as part of their storytelling techniques. And we discovered that some really important language revealed the true nature of the biblical flood story, as a divine conflict that played out on the earth.
0: Now, all of that stuff was really fascinating, to him, as usual, but I'm not sure that we've got our audience sold on the legitimacy of those connections just yet because it's a pretty a pretty radical concept that most of us would never have heard of before. So what can we do to get that message and, and really bring it home for our audience?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Chris, because it really was a wild ride on the crazy train last week. For anyone who missed it, You really need to go back and listen to the last couple of episodes before you proceed with this one. So go on, off you go. Go and listen to that now. And welcome back. Now, we touched on Genesis 6, verse 17 last time, which was really the crux of the whole thing as far as establishing the definition of what exactly is going on here in the biblical story. I want to spend a bit more time on it this week before we get into the remainder of the chapter next time, and we'll hit verse 18 as well. So before we get any further, let's read that text. So this is Genesis. 6 verses 17 and 18, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you.
0: So traditionally, this has been interpreted as God announcing that he is going to bring Lots of rain on the earth to flood the land with water, and it's the rising flood water that will destroy all the living creatures on the earth. But you're saying that something different is going on.
1: Yeah, that's right. But once again, I want to reiterate that I really do believe that there actually was a very real flood event with lots of water and a big boat and a family keeping animals alive on board, just as it says in the surface reading of the text. And aside from the stuff that we're going to discover as we continue to dig deeper into the Hebrew scriptures, The main reason that I think there's something else going on here is that there isn't really any inherent theological value in the idea of a story about some guy keeping animals alive in a boat during a flood. Interesting. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that you could remove the whole story of Noah and the Ark from Genesis and it wouldn't make a great deal of impact on the rest of the Bible. Unless that story is going to be used elsewhere in the Bible in certain ways to inform readers and help them get certain theological messages relevant to their own particular contexts. Even so, the use of the flood story elsewhere in scripture has to bring with it certain elements of the original story in its own context, which the audience needs to be familiar with already. Otherwise, you might as well just make up something else instead of the flood story to communicate your point. As an example of that, last week I mentioned the use of a particular phrase in Isaiah chapter 54, which mentioned the waters of Noah. And in that context, it was made clear that the reference was designed to evoke the image of a short-lived judgment which was tempered by the mercy of God and which gave the people an encouragement to endure a brief time of trouble. Now, it wouldn't have been hard to find other examples of judgment that occurred for a short time, which the author of Isaiah could have used instead of the flood story. But he chose that one, which is fine, and the theological message there is the mercy of God, a message he has extracted from the flood story. That only means something to his audience if they know the flood story too.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. It's no good dropping movie references if your friends haven't seen the movie.
1: Yeah, and Ezekiel uses Noah primarily in chapter 14 to describe the idea of individual responsibility for sin and righteousness. And I mentioned last week that that message really only comes through clearly if you know the Mesopotamian background behind the flood story, because it isn't explicit in the biblical one. His point there is obviously that the righteousness of Noah did not save the rest of the world from God's judgment, but Ezekiel gave two other examples alongside Noah, so he could have done it without him. Again, the flood story wasn't absolutely essential to his point, although it did provide a good illustration. There are many other examples of the use of the story of Noah and the flood within the biblical canon, but very few of them rely on the actual narrative of the deluge to make their point. So what I'm saying here is that there has to be something more going on beyond the idea of a family and a bunch of animals floating around in a boat during a big flood that makes it important enough to include in the Bible. We've got to ask ourselves, what is the unique contribution of the flood story to the biblical message overall? And to answer that, we cannot go beyond the immediate historical context in which the story was written in the Hebrew Bible. It's no good appealing to the New Testament and authors like St. Peter that story had to have some relevance to its first audience in order to be preserved at all, never mind being preserved long enough for the apostles to make use of it in the first century. You can't even appeal to the second temple period in order to find application for the flood story because, again, it's too late. It doesn't matter that later interpreters, like the author of First Enoch, picked up on what was going on in the flood story as we're telling it here because what we need to see is the first audience getting that point. The story of the deluge had to make sense at the time of its incorporation into the collected scriptures as they stood during the period of the exile, because the text needs to make sense to its first audience, or it will never be preserved for future generations to benefit from.
0: So how does the flood story work for the first audience of the scriptures?
1: Well, the story of the flood presents the grievous nature of violence, divine judgment, the defeat of supernatural and human evil, a messianic figure the deliverance of a remnant faithful to Yahweh, the continuous presence of sacred space as a touchpoint with God, the disappointment of trusting in human leadership, the establishment of a new order, and a promise of peace following prolonged conflict and violence, and it succeeds in delivering all of this while perpetuating the expectation of the continued work of God in the world to eventually perfect the created order at some future point. All of this was essential teaching for the Judeans in exile because it was relevant to their immediate circumstances. It met the needs that they had at the time, and it continues to hold value for the people of God to this day. So all of that stuff is great, but it requires a vehicle in order to be able to deliver that message. It is the classic ancient Near Eastern flood narrative that provides a framework that can accommodate all of those elements. And that's why this is a story about lots of water and a big boat and a man saving his family and his animals. All of that stuff fits into this neat little package. In the ancient world, the most effective medium for delivery of teaching is through storytelling. That traditional story with roots deep in the prehistoric past provides the ideal mechanism for delivering all this teaching and theology in a way that utilizes traditional symbolic language easily unpacked by the contemporary audience of the day. And it's that symbolism that delivers the punch. We've already talked a great deal about how the use of the language of a flood provides an ideal way to talk about widespread devastation and destruction. When you look around at the damage left behind after a war has ravaged an area, you can see the way that it appears as though a flood has been through and completely destroyed everything. Whether you're talking about warfare or flood, the result is complete devastation. And
0: that's how the flood becomes an idiomatic expression of warfare that's been preserved for thousands of years
1: thanks to an elite society of ancient scribes. That reminds me of something you wrote, Chris. So when God says that he's going to bring a flood... What we're getting here is the sense that God is initiating something that will result in a devastation like that of a flood. We're getting into some idiomatic language here. And I did begin unpacking this last week. We talked about the way that the procession of a group of divine beings from the heavens to the earth resulted in destruction comparable to that of a flood. And it's that language of the procession of divine beings that's captured in the word in Psalm 29, which is translated as flood, despite the fact that there isn't a flood of water being spoken of in the text. It's only being translated as flood because that same word occurs here in Genesis and nowhere else. And because it perfectly fits that idiomatic usage, even as a reference independent of the context of war and flooding. These destroyers are seen as flood bringers. Because procession captures only half of the image here, we also have to talk about destruction. And it's that picture of destruction which is illustrated in Genesis by the use of the flood motif that makes the connection with flood in translation. In other words, you wouldn't see the word flood in the translation of Psalm 29 if it were not for the fact that this cosmic destruction is spoken of in Genesis in terms of a literal flood of water at face value. It just happens that flood is the most natural fit for describing a destruction that proceeds from somewhere like the flowing of water. That's why it works for military invasions and that kind of thing. The army comes in from some foreign place and sweeps across the land, destroys everything and then imposes a new order in its wake.
0: I think this should be falling into place for a lot of listeners now. It's certainly making more sense for me.
1: That's good, because I recognise that this is a huge cultural shift for a lot of our audience. The primary problem for many Bible readers today, whether they're aware of this connection between warfare and flooding or not, is the fact that God is the one who brings the waters of the flood upon the earth for the express purpose of destroying all flesh. Who hasn't heard somebody say, how could a loving God do that to the world? And I'm sure everybody's had an encounter with an atheist at some point. He's talked about the mean and bloodthirsty God of the Old Testament. Well, actually, that might have been a Calvinist. They are the same God.
0: <sighs> Ouch. There
1: you go. I said it. And that's where I think Psalm 29 is helpful again, because it's the clear teaching of that Psalm that God maintains sovereignty over all these things, even though these divine beings are able to operate with autonomy and make free choices just as we do. And God sits in judgment over not only human, but also supernatural evil. God is also able to turn that situation to good, which is precisely what he does with Noah and the ark. So when God declares that he's bringing the flood, all that we need to infer from that is that his sovereign control is not negated by the free will choices of other divine beings that work in the world. In fact, it's his will that they act according to their own will, because God knows how they will respond according to their nature. He's going to let them do what they do. And rather than the stated purpose of the flood being the destruction of all living things, We ought to consider this in terms of result rather than purpose. That destruction is going to happen, but it isn't what God wants.
0: Wait a minute, that sounds a bit contradictory. Is God doing what he wants or does he not want what he wants to happen? This is confusing.
1: I think it's important that we keep God's nature in mind because in related passages like Ezekiel that we were looking at last week, it's actually stated quite explicitly that God does not desire the death of anyone. Here's Ezekiel 18.32. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live.
0: And that is reassuring. I think it flies in the face of what a lot of people would say about God, given the traditional understanding of this story in particular.
1: Yeah, I want people to see that and really take it in, because you can't argue for the bloodthirsty and violent, nasty old God of the Old Testament when you see passages like this. You can't argue for the Calvinist God who's responsible for evil and for people killing one another. When you see passages like this here in Ezekiel. Exactly. This should really help us to view the flood story as one in which God permits people to carry out their free choices in such a way that he's able ultimately to bring about salvation for those faithful to him. And it means that all the stuff that's actually happening in the flood story is not God's direct action. So although the wording of the text gives the impression that God is personally destroying the world, and I love the King Jimmy there, Behold, I, even I, do bring... Well, what we see on closer examination of the text is that it's the free choices of both human and divine individuals that bring about this destruction. And we only get that from an understanding of what the mabul, the flood, is and the choices made by humans that brought us to this point. So the declaration that God makes is an announcement of his sovereignty over these things and not his personal preference. What God is doing in his sovereignty is essentially steering the ship. There's a pun there, but seriously, you'll notice that there's no steering mechanism on the ark, which means that God decides where it finishes up. Anyway, uh, on a course of redemption. And again, we're back to Psalm 29 and the action of God as sitting in authority and judgment over the activities of his divine counsel. So when you read this, you need to be reading a flood of waters. That's not one word, it doesn't say flood waters. And that's important because it helps you to avoid confusing the terminology.
0: You mean the flood and the waters are two different things?
1: Well, the flood is an action. It's what's happening. It's that procession and movement that we've been talking about. The waters are the divine beings participating in that action. So it's a flood of waters, and that means that this movement or procession of divine beings occurs in a way that brings chaos and death. That's what the imagery of waters communicates. We've talked about this before quite extensively. You can't predict the movement of water. And there's no hope of surviving it. Once the water's overcome you, that's it. You die. You can't live there.
0: And that's why Noah gets on board the ark, because of the waters of the flood.
1: Yeah. Last week, I mentioned the constellation of the seven stars of the Pleiades and its connection to the flood story by means of the dates in the story, the period of 40 days and nights, and the fact that the technical term mabul is used in the context of divine or celestial beings. There's also the direct connection to the cultural use of that constellation for determining when the weather will change. And I mentioned that the descent of the Pleiades below the horizon coincided with the stormy season on the Mediterranean Sea. That association led to the conclusion that these seven stars were essentially the harbingers of death and destruction on the earth, which resulted in their inclusion in various ancient mythological stories about cataclysm. And as I mentioned earlier, the Assyrian root behind that unique term, mabul, is connected directly to destruction. And we're taking that Assyrian connection seriously because, after all, the flood narrative is, at its core, an Assyrian cultural artifact. So when God says, and it's God here as in Elohim, which means that he's being presented over all other gods and the whole world too, that he's going to bring a flood of waters. It's not just a weather report. This is the end of the world. Certainly the Apostle Peter read it that way too when he said that the world that then was perished.
0: Uh, hang on a sec. Peter says that the world perished? Yeah,
1: that's Second Peter 3 verse 6.
0: That then the flood ends and everything just carries on and it wasn't the annihilation of the universe, it was more like hitting the reset button on the world?
1: Yeah, we're going to see that it gets talked about in terms of creation all over again.
0: Does that mean then that the end of the world as we imagine it with a new heavens and a new earth is the same kind of deal? Like God doesn't build a new planet or just make us all float around in space in the afterlife?
1: Yeah, I I did mention briefly that this story was going to be central to an understanding of Jewish and later Christian eschatology or thought about the last days. And yeah, the idea of a renewal of the order of things on this planet is certainly the way to think about it. It's a very tangible and embodied future existence where we live and function as we do now, except that things will be better than they were before and we will be better too. But that doesn't happen until the destruction of the old world order. I want to talk a bit about the verb that's translated as to destroy in this passage. It's fairly common, turns up about 150 times, but in the form that we find it here, it has an interesting distribution. Every time we find this verb form from Genesis 6 through to the plagues of Egypt in the Exodus, we find ourselves in the same situation. It's the action of divine beings under the authority of God enacting the judgment of God against humans in the world. Later on, it gets used for other things, but I don't think this pattern of usage is accidental. There are other terms that could have been used. Now, you will hear a lot of people talking about the so-called principle of first usage in Scripture, and that's the idea that the very first time that you find a word in the Bible, that usage determines how it's meant to be interpreted every time you find it on subsequent occasions in Scripture.
0: So what do you think, Tim? Is that a solid approach?
1: Yes and no. I think we need to add a bit of a qualifier to that idea. It works a lot better if you know the chronological priority of the writing of that passage. In other words, in as far as you can determine the earliest written passage, that's going to help you work out the meaning for stuff that came later. And that's important because when you come to stuff like the primeval history, which as far as we can tell has fairly late authorship in its present form, you've got to realise that a lot of the vocabulary has already existed for a long time. We might be talking anywhere between 500 and 1,000 years before the primeval history was written. So think about it logically. That means people were already using these words for a very long time before they appeared on the first pages of our canon of Scripture you're not going to have people using these words for hundreds of years without having any idea what they meant until finally somebody came along and gave us Genesis chapter 6. Yeah, that's a fair point. But it's not cut and dry by any means. We talk about a closed canon nowadays, but as I mentioned many times, we have abundant evidence that the text of Scripture had some limited fluidity about it in its earliest days. In other words, we can't be certain how much modification or redaction has taken place over time. That makes it hard to figure out when particular words first appear in Scripture. Notwithstanding that, It's telling that stories in which divine judgment brings about destruction at the hands of supernatural entities feature prominently in Israel's earliest narratives. Think Sodom and Gomorrah, the ten plagues. So given what we already know about this passage here in Genesis 6, you can see how it fits. And we're going to find as we continue through the flood story that a familiarity with Israel's early history is essential to unpacking what's going on. And that history shows us that the means by which this destruction is going to be enacted here in Genesis 6 is by means of the action of divine beings which we've already talked about at length. And the stated purpose of this destruction was to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Well, according to the NIV, it's all life. Actually, the text says all flesh, and that is technical. It means that whatever has a material body on the earth, human or otherwise, is going to die. Also, the word creature doesn't belong there. It's all that is on the earth, created or otherwise, and that includes the Nephilim. The qualifier in the text is that we're talking about terrestrial beings not anything that isn't embodied in flesh. So under the heavens is also a qualifier and tells us that this particular judgment focused on mortal beings is not going to be the end of celestial beings.
0: But I thought this whole thing was because of the fallen sons of God. Aren't they supposed to get consequences? What happens to them?
1: Well, we'll get to them later. For now, we're very much focused on the terrestrial players in the story. And That's why we have this consistent emphasis under the heavens, having the breath of life, everything on the land. This is emphasising the embodied nature of the objects of this action.
0: Does that phrase then, having the breath of life, function the same as it does in uh, Genesis 2, remember, when we talked about the man receiving the spirit of God?
1: That's the trick there, isn't it? You hear that and you immediately think about Genesis 2. But that breath of life was especially imparted to the man, as in all mankind. It wasn't given to the animals. So what we see here is an illustration of that mixture, the breakdown of distinction between man and the other creatures and the chaotic non-creatures of the world. And this is the primary reason for the Flood. It's about restoring the sanctity and the holiness of all God's creatures. And that means re-establishing the boundaries between the different created beings. This is essential not only for the survival of the human race, but for the continued flourishing of all creation. So it's not just about uh, punishing the bad guys. God is always working out multiple purposes in the world, isn't he? He doesn't waste a thing. No word returns to him void. There's a lot going on. And this is restoring the sanctity of the image of God in man and the sacred space that he is intended to be. So that means that there has to be a separation now between the different kinds of living things. And we see it in the particular language used for dying here, which is often translated as to give up the ghost. The common use of this term is breathe your last, to expire. It's actually not a super common term for death, though. It occurs less than 30 times in the Bible. It's not a term that indicates the separation of body and soul, although there is some history of interpretation along those lines quite late. That's not a mainstream Jewish idea until we get to the Hellenistic period in the writing in 1st Enoch.
0: So what exactly is the form of this judgment that's happening? You've talked about warfare, and the way that it's compared to a flood, but what would we have actually seen if we were like there, looking at it with our very own eyes?
1: That's a good question. We definitely are talking about human warfare, but as far as the divine beings that are stirring this up, we're probably not going to see those in a visual sense. The main thing is we just don't know if these destroyers that God has sent into the battle were manifested in some embodied sense or if they just provided the impetus within populations of people to turn them against one another. And if you could see them, we don't know what they would look like. So they might have looked like ordinary people. They might have had some brilliant angelic form. Or maybe they look like aliens or something. We just don't know. But whatever the case, the result is warfare on an extinction-level scale from the perspective of the author and his original audience. The other thing to remember is that we can't put limits on the abilities of vast cosmic intelligences doing battle in our realm. So who's to say that part of the battle plan didn't involve a real flood of actual water, just as we see in ancient battle records where rivers are diverted, dams are broken, and planes are flooded in order to enact military victories? More likely, though, is that these entities just had to stir up the various factions and turn them against each other and let them wipe one another off the map. And if you've ever been in a large crowd that has become rowdy or violent, then you understand what I mean when I say that there's a certain spirit of chaos that emerges whenever people are gathered in large numbers in a situation of unrest. And if we consider it from that point of view, we actually have some historical interpretation along those lines. For example, in First Enoch.
0: You keep referring to First Enoch, Tim. What's the deal there? Why is that so important?
1: Well it's important because the literature of the Enochic corpus provides a crucial stepping stone on our way toward first century Jewish interpretation of these stories and that informs our understanding of the New Testament. So it's very important from a biblical studies perspective that every so often we take a look in the middle distance on our way to the horizon check that we're still on track. And that doesn't mean that I'm using first Enoch as the interpretive framework for my analysis of Genesis. As I've said so many times in my book and on this show, you don't need the text of first Enoch to arrive at the conclusions that I do. You just have to study the scriptures. That's how the author of 1st Enoch got there in the first place most of the time. And the more you do that with the mindset of an ancient Israelite in your head, the more you're going to see that these interpretations are consistent. And that's just another indicator of the reliability of New Testament interpretation of these stories in the primeval history here in Genesis. This is why Luke says that the flood came and destroyed, not drowned, but destroyed the ungodly. And he follows that with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is in Luke 17. And what kind of rain fell? Fire and sulfur. Not a drop of water in the picture. Again, this is the work of God's subordinates, not just regular events. Why does Matthew 24 say that the flood came and carried them away, literally picked up and carried off like hostages in battle instead of drowning them? He's talking about this military action. He's not describing a flood of water. And how do you go from a surface reading of Genesis and the story of a flood of water and a big boat, to these ideas of military action? It's not just a close reading of the text like what we're doing here. It's every step along the way in the history of interpretation. So we'll have a look at this. Uh, here's first Enoch, chapter 10. and Read the whole chapter. Then the Most High, the Great and Holy One, spoke and sent Az Yalalir to the son of Lamech and said to him, Tell him in my name, hide thyself, and reveal to him the end which is to come. For the whole earth will be destroyed, and the water of the deluge is about to come over the whole earth, and what is upon it will be destroyed. And now instruct him that he may escape, and his seed remain on the whole earth. And again the Lord spoke to Raphael, bind Azazel hand and foot, and put him in the darkness. Make an opening in the desert, which is in Duel, and put him there. And lay upon him rough and pointed rocks, and cover him with darkness, that he may remain there forever, and cover his face that he may not see the light. And on the great day of judgment, he will be cast into the fire and heal the earth, which the angels have defiled and announce the healing of the earth, that I will heal it. And that not all the sons of men shall be destroyed through the mystery of all the things which the watchers have spoken and have taught their sons. And the whole earth was defiled through the example of the deeds of Azazel to him ascribe all the sins. And God said to Gabriel, Go against the bastards and those cast off, and against the children of fornication, and destroy the children of fornication and the children of the watchers from among men. Lead them out, and let them loose, that they may destroy each other by murder, for their days shall not be long. And they will all supplicate thee, but their fathers will secure nothing for them, although they expect an everlasting life, and that each one of them will live five hundred years. And God said to Michael, Announce to Semyaza and to the others who are with him, who have bound themselves to women, to be destroyed with them in all their contamination. When all their sons shall have slain one another, and they shall have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them under the hills of the earth for seventy generations, till the day of their judgment and of their end, till the last judgment has been passed for all eternity. And in those days they will be led to the abyss of fire, in torture and in prison they will be locked for all eternity, and then he will burn and be destroyed. They will be burned together from now on to the end of all generations and destroy all souls of lust and the children of the watchers because they have oppressed mankind. Destroy all oppression from the face of the earth and all wicked deeds shall cease and the plant of justice and righteousness shall appear and deeds will become a blessing. Justice and righteousness will be planted in joy forever. Then all the just will bend the knee and they will remain alive till they beget a thousand children. And they will complete all the days of their youth and their Sabbath in peace. And in those days the whole earth will be worked in justice, and will all be planted with trees and be full of blessings. And all the trees of desire will be planted on it, and all vines will be planted on it. The vine planted on it will bear fruit in abundance. And of all the seeds sown on it, one measure will bear ten thousand, and one measure of olives will make ten presses of oil. And cleanse thou the earth of all oppression, and all injustice, and all sin, and all wickedness, and all uncleanness, which are produced on the earth. Eradicate them from the earth. And all the children of men shall become just, and all the nations shall worship me as God, and bless. And all will worship me. And the earth will be cleansed of all corruption, and all sin, and all punishment, and all torment. And I will never again send a flood upon it from generation to generation, to eternity. right, so that's the end of the chapter. Now, so you see that in Enoch, the ark is a place of sanctuary, and there's only one mention of water, which is probably not literal. And how do we know? Look at the way the giants die. It's murder. They're killing each other. It's not water. The end goal here is a kind of restoration of Eden, and that's not because we're all supposed to be walking around naked in gardens. It's because that reflects a time when the good order that God established was the dominant paradigm. Let's move on now in Genesis 6 and get into verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Right off the bat here, I'm going to drop another surprise that I think most people didn't see coming. God is not talking here about the covenant that will come after the flood. It's actually quite clear in the text. Let's read it again carefully. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. You notice the connection there. I will establish my covenant You will enter the Ark. This is a kind of agreement that takes place at the beginning of the story, not at the end. I
0: hadn't thought about that before. So what kind of agreement are we talking about?
1: Well, it was quite common in the ancient Near East for parties to come together in agreement prior to the commencement of battle against a common enemy. The superior party would dictate the terms and the inferior party would agree if they wished to maintain this treaty. Sometimes there would be negotiations that we don't see here in this text. What we do see is that Noah is commended for his righteousness and his obedience. This is how you know that Noah wasn't a Semite because he didn't try to strike a bargain.
0: (laughs) Yes, Abraham was like, well, what if there are 50 righteous? What if there are 45? What if there are 40? Noah just, like, gets in the boat.
1: Right. So God is obviously the superior party here, and he sets the terms, and Noah just agrees. For his part, all he has to do is look after his family and the animals. God's going to take care of the rest. One of the reasons that there are so many animals on the boat is because it wasn't just a case of ordinary sacrifices that Noah wanted to make. It was the fact that he knew there would be a subsequent covenant made after the war was over, and that would dictate the terms by which he would live under God going forward. And this puts God back in his rightful place as sovereign over the new world from the perspective of mankind. Now, I want to talk about something that comes up really frequently in the world of fringe giantology.
0: Ooh, this sounds interesting. We didn't ever get to the Q&A yet.
1: Yeah, this is one of those things I've been wanting to say for a while, even though I do cover it in my book. Oh,
0: boy, I feel a rant bubbling up.
1: Mm. God makes this covenant with Noah in terms of a treaty, and that means God is offering Noah and those with him protection from what's going on outside the walls of the ark. The only condition of this treaty is simple obedience. And the only reason this treaty was extended to Noah is because of the way that he lived in the world without becoming defiled, like everybody else among the Nephilim. And Noah gets told explicitly to put his family and his animals on the boat. Some of you listening out there who think that one of Noah's relatives or perhaps Noah himself must have been biologically related to the Nephilim as some kind of explanation for the reappearance of giants after the flood. Let me ask you this. What kind of idiot do you think God would be to let that happen? Well, do you think that God can't tell which of his creatures have kept themselves pure and which have not? God has already drawn the battle lines here and he's not about to put his enemies in the boat with the good guys. I feel like I shouldn't have to say these things, but I do. The fact that giants reappear after the flood is not an indication that God has failed or that God overlooked something or made a mistake. It's nothing more than the human perseverance of rebellion coming through once again. And it has nothing to do with the people or the animals on board the ark. And people are going to persist with this line of thinking. And they'll say, maybe somebody snuck on board, a stowaway on board the ark. And I know that's a popular opinion coming from rabbis in the medieval period. But where are they getting that from? It's not in the text. This is just another one of those situations where the rabbis are trying to solve a problem and they get creative. It's not in the text. The solution they need actually is in the text, but it requires a more intimate knowledge of the original context of the story which would not have been available to them. So they've had to come up with something else. So I just don't know what else to say about that. If your theory about the return of the Giants after the flood is basically ignorant of the text, you can't defend your position. You've got nothing. If you want my position on this, it's in my book, and we are going to talk about it when we get into Season 10 of the podcast.
0: Okay. Is that the end of the rant? Is it safe to come out now?
1: Yeah, I think I've got that out of my system for now. I feel much better. Thank you.
0: A quick rant is a good rant. Okay, well, since we had a super long, epic episode last time, I'm not feeling any pressure to make this episode much longer. We'll come back next week to talk about the animals. Uh, we might even make it to the end of Chapter 6. But before all that happens, it's time for Q&A. All
1: right, I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at The World at Large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of them. I love hearing from you, especially if I can put you get answers to your giant questions. Henry asked in the Answers to
0: Giant Questions discussion group on Facebook, Can someone expand on the quote on page 353 of the book, Answers to Giant Questions, that we might be raising a generation that is biologically ineligible for the everlasting life that God can give if the Nephilim, who were biological and spiritual, are defeated, and now Raphrahim, and now only spiritual post-Christ, how can we produce anyone or modify anyone to be ineligible for redeeming grace? It seems to me, at least, that unless we have another mixing of fallen angels with humans, then none of our human-only efforts at becoming gods could render us ineligible for grace and salvation. Very open to discussion, as I'm only trying to understand. Thanks, Henry.
1: Oh, that's a good question and an interesting topic for our discussion. Thanks for raising that one, Henry. And thanks for joining and posting in our discussion group on Facebook. Henry's question is about part of my book, Answers to Joint Questions. To give you all a bit of context, I'm going to read a bit around that quote. Despite the repeated warnings of biblical writers, we've not done enough to resist false teachers and the doctrines of demons. We paid heed to false apostles and we ignored the words of martyred saints. When Jesus warned that the enemy was planting weeds amongst our wheat, we were asleep. When Jude warned the church about false teachers, comparing them to the fallen angels and the idolaters of Sodom, we snoozed. When Peter implored us to remember the flood and the evil that made it necessary, we skipped the page. When Paul told us to maintain our standards of propriety in worship, we scoffed. When Moses and Ezekiel recounted the stories of the ancient giants, we avoided translating them correctly because of unbelief. At every point in our framework of biblical understanding, we have neglected the teaching of God that preserves our humanity and keeps at bay the vicious and depraved, the violent and the inhuman. We never thought we were raising a generation that might be biologically ineligible for the everlasting life that only God can give. But subconsciously, we have idealized Goliath. A telling example is a bodybuilding gym named after him just a few blocks from my home. We want to be tall, witty, long-lived and strong. We want to command attention and respect. We've subscribed to the doctrine of the serpent that we can create our own destiny. We want to blame God for our inferiority and weakness. We wish to deny responsibility like Cain, to be able to buy power and threaten vengeance like Lamech. We want to have an advantage over the world around us, buying into the folly of Nimrod, who believed he'd found a way to become a god. And today more than ever, We want to be connected to the world around us in constant unison so that we can have whatever we want. We're building our own babble.
0: Some profound thoughts there, my friend.
1: That's an extract from Chapter 33, Rise of the Neo-Nephilim, in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. As you can probably tell, this chapter is about the prevailing trends and attitudes that we see in our modern society but it also provides an introduction to the next section of the book which deals with eschatology or the study of the end times. A lot of that stuff in the eschatology section is speculative, and I guess it has to be when you're talking about things in the future. But the general thrust of all this is that for as long as people have wanted to be more than human, they've been at risk of crossing divinely ordained boundaries of creation. If there's one thing that we've been learning as we've gone through the flood story so far in the podcast, it's that the act of creation performed by God is most sacred and it's done according to the divine wisdom of God, which none of us can ever hope to match. Maintaining distinction between different things in the created order is key to upholding the sanctity of all created things as God intended. That's why so much of the law given to the people of Israel concerns keeping certain things separate from others by their categories. That's why when we read Genesis, everything is created according to its kind. That's why God was grieved to his heart to see what had become of humanity when the sons of God rebelled and were embraced by humans looking for an advantage over their fellow man. That's what made the flood inevitable.
0: So we're talking about maintaining creation order?
1: Yeah, and when we look ahead to the future of mankind, what do we see? We see people getting silicon chips implanted in their brains. We see people growing body parts for humans from animal matter. We see people blending genders and identities. We see people embracing the occult, searching for extraterrestrial life. None of this is new, it's just getting normalised. So the question is, at what point do we cross the line? There's going to come a day when it's considered criminal negligence to have a biologically natural human child. And if that child comes home and says, Mum, Dad, I've decided that I want to get married to a dog, it'll be considered old-fashioned and bigoted to try and talk him out of it. There's going to come a day when it's normal for people to invite what the Bible calls demons or unclean spirits to be the supplement to their spiritual and mental health. I'm sure people will be calling them something else to avoid that association. Something just gives me that impression. We're going to see people engaging with the dark forces of this world in order to get longevity, healing, wisdom and strength because they will not dare approach God's throne of grace because that would mean denying the self and a life of repentance and they don't want that. Eligibility for salvation, as I wrote in the beginning of my book, depends in part on our humanity. It's not offered to any other created or uncreated being. Christ died for our sins by becoming a human and his death atones for us in our humanity. And the uniqueness of humanity is bound in the commission that God gave us to represent him. It was God's good pleasure to specifically choose the human race for this representative function. So the moment we deny our God-given humanity in favour of something else or invite some other spirit to be joined with our own, we're no longer representing God. And that's what I think is on the horizon for humanity. If we don't resist this paganism, and transhumanism that are making rapid inroads in our culture. We're going to see people transforming their bodies and destroying their souls in an effort to be more than human, to be gods. That's where it ends up. We become the new Nephilim. And I talk a bit more about that in the book as you get further into that eschatology section and the discussion on Revelation chapter 9 in particular. Now, this isn't a foregone conclusion by any means, and it's a discussion we need to keep having. I know it sounds like a slippery slope argument and people will be quick to say that things aren't that bad, that this is fear-mongering. Well, I hope so. I really do. What I really want is for the faithful people of God to take a strong stance against this kind of thing and to encourage the world around us instead of seeking personal power and pleasure and the eradication of that which makes us feel uncomfortable, to come around the poor and weak and the sick and the needy and actually help them. I don't believe in a world where nobody's in need and nobody feels powerless and nobody gets sick and nobody needs help. That's not a reality. And sure, if we can make medical advances that reduce suffering and eradicate disease, that's great. It's when we start talking about the quest for immortality and superhuman powers and that sort of thing. That's when I have a problem. But what I really do want to see and what I do believe in is the power of God working through his people to help those in need with love and compassion and grace. I believe in those things. And I believe that as long as mankind is faithful to God and committed to representing him in this way, we have all the power we need to solve the problems of mankind. It's not about being a God. It's about being the hands and feet of God. It's about loving people in spite of weakness rather than only loving those who show no weakness. I hope all that makes sense. There's a lot more that could be said, but we just don't have the time.
0: That is awesome, Tim, and a very good call, very encouraging. And I think that is a wrap. There's certainly some food for thought there. Thanks again to Henry for that great question. Don't forget, folks, you too can send your own questions in to be answered on the show just like Henry did join the Answers to Giant Questions discussion group on Facebook or just send us a question via our website at giantanswers.com. Anyway, that is all for now. And when we come back next week, we will hopefully be finishing Genesis Chapter 6 and talking about the animals on board the ark. So that, that sounds like fun.
1: Yeah, it should be interesting. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast
0: it's time to wrap up today's episode but if you want more don't forget to get yourself a copy of answers to giant questions we're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on amazon or goodreads to help it become more visible in search results even if you just give it stars that'll help but a full review is certainly really appreciated please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show this podcast comes out every week but you want to make sure you never miss an episode so if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions
1: podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Great Brave Forsaken, braveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreesc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions, read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Okay, Cosmic
0: Battle Buddies. I get that would be British our shit. band name.
1: Yeah. Probably
0: the front man, obviously. Yeah, I think uh, it would be. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, you can you could get sponsorship. Um, I think it's it's going to be a niche audience. You know, specialist Christian podcasts. Uh, don't know what their target audience is, but
1: I, I reckon. I mean, just a conservative estimate here, but I reckon the number of Bible nerds who are into researching the ancient Near Eastern context of the Hebrew Bible and and who also love to drink eggnog on a regular basis in large quantities that number would be significantly close to one
0: <laughs> <laughs> i thought you was gonna say it might be double digits but i thought well there,
1: there would be quite a number and that number would be one all this you know dribble Tom, you know like like us just Tom talking Tom rubbish here and that sort of stuff that doesn't make the cut you know because i record all of it yeah just in case i say something brilliant Mm. Be waiting a long time for that. In the meantime, just record outtakes because people get to laugh at me. Sure. <laughs> and I get to laugh at you. Uh,
0: <laughs> and by, how do you pronounce this? I'd like, to say yeah. six different pronunciations of the same word. <laughs> uh, all right.
1: Then the Most High, the Great and Holy One, spoke and sent Oz Yal Did I say that right? Oz Yal Right, let's try that again. Then the, <laughs> then the, then the Most High, the Great and Holy One, spoke and sent Az to the son of Lamech. Now I still didn't get that right. <laughs> then the Most High, the Great and Holy One, spoke and sent Az <laughs> Goodness me! Just when I got it right.
0: Normally you um, write them out phonetically, don't you? Oh. Uh, or sometimes.
1: Well, I'm I'm trying to get to, to reading them right. See the J's are actually wise. Um I, yeah, I don't know. Just just when I thought I had it right, Liz sent me a message and it popped up on the screen in front of what I was trying to read. I couldn't read it.
0: That's try. what that noise was.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's try this again.
0: There's that button again. Um, and that's and that's why Noah gets on that's why Noah gets on board the arc because okay. It's the Hey Man theme song.